Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This podcast takes a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. Please consider sharing it with family and friends and submitting a review on iTunes. In each episode, you will hear introductory remarks, a short flyover summary of the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Moroni, Chapter 6 This is the final chapter in Moroni's short section that spans from chapters 2 through 6 that describes specific workings of the Savior among his early disciples in the New World. The chapters that preceded this, chapters 2 through 5, focused on specific priesthood ordinances, and in most instances, even providing the exact wording that should be used. In giving his disciples the power to confer the Holy Ghost, for example, in chapter 2, ordaining elders, priests, and teachers in chapter 3, and of course, administering the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in chapters 4 and 5. Well, this final chapter in this section, then, before we move into the writings of Mormon, serves as an important end statement to the chapters that have preceded it. Moroni chapter 6 also talks about the workings of the early Nephite church. The focus here, however, is not on the mechanics of the ordinances of the priesthood, but instead the focus is on nurturing those who have entered in to the covenants that these ordinances formalize. By doing this, I think, in these five chapters, again spanning from Moroni chapter 2 through Moroni chapter 6, Moroni provides us with two important views of the role of the priesthood, which is as relevant in our modern dispensation as it was in this particular ancient one. It's a dual role, really, and as we've discussed previously, the Lord's authorized servants act very much as his own hands. As these servants move among the people of the earth, their job is to bring the covenants of the Lord to the people in two distinct ways. And both of these ways have to do with ministering. The first priesthood duty that is on display in the first four chapters of this section is the duty of administering ordinances to the members of the church. And the second duty that is on display in this chapter, in Moroni chapter 6, is to minister to those who have taken upon themselves the name of Christ and who have entered in to these covenants. So, priesthood holders minister and they add minister. All of their activities revolve around dispensing the sacred ordinances that bring the covenants to the people and ministering to those who have entered into those sacred agreements. We might say then that this comprises the ministry of one who holds the priesthood. It's quite interesting, I think, in light of that idea, that in the next chapter, in Moroni chapter 7, Mormon will speak of the office of the ministry of angels. It's there that we can see the relationship between the work of men and women on this side of the veil who bring people to the covenant, and again, who minister to one another throughout that process, and the work of those who are on the other side of the veil. 
With this in mind, verse 31 of Moroni chapter 7 will say that the office of their ministry, and here we are talking about angels, is to call men to repentance and to fulfill and to do the work of the covenants of the Father, which he hath made unto the children of men, to prepare the way among the children of men by declaring the word of Christ unto the chosen vessels of the Lord, that they may bear testimony of him. I think we can also see, as we come to Moroni chapter 6, that the things that are taught here are an extension of the Savior's teachings in 3 Nephi chapter 18. After administering the sacrament to the people in that chapter, the Savior was careful to minister to those who had entered into such a covenant, and he most certainly taught his disciples to do the same. He spoke of the ongoing necessity of one who had entered into such a covenant to remain worthy saying in verse 29, For whoso eateth and drinketh my flesh and blood unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to his soul. Therefore, if ye know that a man is unworthy to eat and drink of my flesh and blood, ye shall forbid him. Nevertheless, the Savior continued, ye shall not cast him out from among you, but ye shall minister unto him, and shall pray for him unto the Father in my name. And if it so be that he repenteth and is baptized in my name, then ye shall receive him and shall minister unto him of my flesh and blood. And there's that word minister again, except in the second case in verse 30. It seems interchangeable with the word administer. So again, here in this incident in 3 Nephi, this time that Moroni is hearkening unto in this section between Moroni chapters 2 and 6, we can see the same pattern that Moroni is bringing forward of administering the ordinances and ministering to those who enter into them. When we consider how to apply that pattern today in our own activities as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, we can remember Mormon's words when he described Alma's efforts to do this very same thing for his small band of followers who were willing to go with him to the waters of Mormon. There, Alma led these people to the covenant of baptism. He administered that ordinance, and ever after, He and those who had similarly become children of Christ in this way ministered to one another. Here is what Alma said to these people in Mosiah chapter 18, verses 8 through 9. Behold, here are the waters of Mormon, and now as ye are desirous to come into the fold of God, and to be called his people, and are willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light, yea, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn, yea, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things, and in all places that ye may be in, even until death, that ye may be redeemed of God, and be numbered with those of the first resurrection, that ye may have eternal life. So, again, I think we can see that the pattern is the same for us today. We have the privilege of not only knowing of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, but of actually entering into a covenant relationship with Him. This covenant relationship is formalized by priesthood ordinances, and it brings the ultimate and proximate everyday, moment-to-moment saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ into our lives. When we enter into such a relationship, our hearts are naturally inclined towards those who have done likewise. And so, as the body of Christ, we minister to one another and lift each other up. And then, enjoying the unity and the blessings that come from such a state, we desire to extend these blessings to others by bringing the covenant to them. It's no wonder, then, that Joseph Smith once said, A man filled with the love of God is not content with blessing his family alone, 
but ranges through the whole world, anxious to bless the whole human race. Well, with those introductory thoughts, let's take a look at the structure of this short chapter, Moroni chapter 6. It's comprised of nine verses, and in the first section, in verses 1 through 3, we find Moroni discussing the prerequisites of baptism, and again, he's describing the workings of the early church, so he's hearkening back to the way in which the Savior instituted this with his disciples. In verse 4, Moroni continues with the sequence, discussing those who are worthy of baptism and have entered into this covenant. He talks about two specific blessings that follow that ordinance. The first is the cleansing that takes place by the power of the Holy Ghost, and then the second is that those who are baptized are numbered among the people of the Church of Christ. For the remainder of the chapter, now that we have followed any one individual who was worthy to be baptized, who became baptized, and then who assumed these two wonderful blessings that are described in verse 4, Moroni now provides us with a collective view of all those who were willing to enter into such a covenant. They become the church, the early church of Jesus Christ. And here in the final verses of the chapter, Moroni will talk about patterns of the early church of Jesus Christ. So in verses 5 and 6, he will discuss meetings and how they were conducted, and the sacrament, which was the centerpiece of those meetings. He will say in verse 6 that they did meet together oft to partake of bread and wine in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. Then in verse 7, another important pattern of the early church of Jesus Christ is discussed, and that is the pattern of eschewing iniquity among members and of observing specific policies of church discipline. So we'll learn more about that, and that's in verses 7 and 8. Now, in the final verse, in verse 9, this final feature of the early church of Jesus Christ is described or discussed, and that is that meetings were conducted by this early church by the power of the Holy Ghost. With that, let's return now to verse 1 for a reading. And now I speak concerning baptism. Remember, Moroni has just spoken concerning the sacrament. Behold, elders, priests, and teachers were baptized, and they were not baptized, save they brought forth fruit, meet that they were worthy of it. So here, Moroni is establishing the need for worthiness before one enters into this covenant, through the ordinance of baptism. Bruce R. McConkie has spoken of this, saying, No price is too great to pay for the privilege of receiving this holy ordinance. We must prepare ourselves for baptism. We must be worthy to make a covenant with the Holy One, We must have a fixed and unalterable determination to conform to his will. Otherwise, baptism profiteth nothing. No ordinance is binding on earth and in heaven unless it is ratified and sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And this spirit is given only to those who are just and true. Just as those who partake unworthily of the sacrament eat and drink damnation to their souls, so those who are baptized unworthily receive cursings instead of blessings. So we can see the order of things here. Our desire is to enter into a covenant with Jesus Christ. That covenant is formalized by the ordinance of baptism. The terms of that covenant are continually reiterated and renewed by the ordinance of the sacrament. But these performances and ordinances do not have efficacy in and of themselves. They must be ratified, as Elder McConkie is teaching here, by the Holy Spirit of promise. Each of us must have that experience 
as an accompanying feature to our receipt of these ordinances. Something to think carefully about. Verse 2. Neither did they receive any unto baptism, save they came forth with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Now when we think of the need, once again, of the Holy Spirit of promise, uh, that it is in attendance when we enter into these covenants and participate in these ordinances, it would make sense that we must approach this process with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, or our chances of uh, having the Holy Spirit of promise present on such an occasion are all but nil. And as verse 2 continues, discussing those who are received into baptism, and witnessed unto the church that they truly repented of all their sins. The Book of Mormon Institute Manual says, What does it mean to have a broken heart and a contrite spirit? President Ezra Taft Benson explained that it is the same godly sorrow which is a deep realization that our actions have offended our Father and our God. It is the sharp and keen awareness that our behavior caused the Savior, He who knew no sin, even the greatest of all, to endure agony and suffering. Our sins caused him to bleed at every pore. This very real mental and spiritual anguish is what the scriptures refer to as having a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And there, President Benson provides several references in the Book of Mormon, in Doctrine and Covenant section 20, in Psalms, and in Isaiah. Then he says such a spirit is the absolute prerequisite for true repentance. Here are the two references that President Benson provides from the book of Psalms, for example. In Psalm 34, verse 18, it says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such to be of a contrite spirit. That shows us how ancient this expression is, and this idea of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Psalm 51, verse 17, says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. I think I'll also just take a moment and read this beautiful verse from Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, that President Benson also references. It says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Elder Bruce D. Porter once wrote in an October 2007 conference report, When our hearts are broken, we are completely open to the Spirit of God and recognize our dependence on Him for all that we have and all that we are. The sacrifice so entailed is a sacrifice of pride in all its forms. Like malleable clay in the hands of a skilled potter, the brokenhearted can be molded and shaped in the hands of the Master. Those who have a broken heart and a contrite spirit are willing to do anything and everything that God asks of them, without resistance or resentment. We cease doing things our way and learn to do them God's way instead. There is yet another dimension of a broken heart, namely our deep gratitude for Christ's suffering on our behalf. When we remember the Savior and His suffering, our hearts too will break in gratitude for the Anointed One. As we make the sacrifice to Him of all that we have and all that we are, the Lord will fill our hearts with peace he will bind up the brokenhearted and grace our lives with the love of God. So I think the value of this great chapter, Moroni chapter 6, begins to distill upon us in the early verses. Because we realize that Moroni isn't simply telling us from the previous chapters in his self-titled book that the way to salvation is to coldly go through the motions of these ordinances that he has described. 
As the Apostle Paul has explained, ordinances are cold and dead if they're not infused with the life that is brought to such a proposition of covenant-making by a broken heart and a contrite spirit, and if they're not accompanied by the Holy Spirit of promise. Moroni is showing us then, I believe, in this chapter, in Moroni chapter 6, what it is that gives these ordinances life. Verse 3, And none were received unto baptism, save they took upon them the name of Christ, having a determination to serve him to the end. Now notice the order of things there as well. One has not successfully taken upon him or herself the name of Christ simply by virtue of having performed the ordinance. But here, taking upon themselves the name of Christ is listed as the prerequisite to being received unto baptism. The order of that is a little bit surprising. President Oaks has spoken of this, saying when we witness our willingness to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ, we are signifying our commitment to do all that we can to achieve eternal life in the kingdom of our Father. We are expressing our candidacy, our determination to serve for exaltation in the celestial kingdom. Ogden and Skinner have written, as they've summarized the teachings of these first three verses, Moroni listed the conditions and requirements for baptism into the kingdom of God on earth. 1. Bring forth fruit worthy of it. For example, pray, study the scriptures, and attend church. 2. Come forth with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That is, we have rid ourselves of pride and are humble. 3. Witness unto the church that we have truly repented of all our sins. 4. Be willing to take upon ourselves the name of Christ. 5. Be determined to serve him to the end, not just for a few weeks or months, but to the end. And someday we will realize there is no end. Here we see that the principle of enduring to the end is part of the baptismal covenant. And with that last idea in mind, there's this beautiful phrase in this verse that Moroni has given us, determination to serve. President Thomas S. Monson once said this, and this was in an April 1994 conference report. Though exaltation is a personal matter, and while individuals are saved not as a group, but indeed as individuals, yet one cannot live in a vacuum. Membership in the church calls forth a determination to serve. A position of responsibility may not be of recognized importance, nor may the reward be broadly known. Service to be acceptable to the Savior must come from willing minds, ready hands, and pledged hearts. Well, now that we have established this in the first three verses, we've established the prerequisites to baptism, really. Now we will read of the benefits of baptism in verse 4. And after they had been received unto baptism and were wrought upon and cleansed by the power of the Holy Ghost. So there's the first effect or benefit from this life-changing ordinance. They were numbered among the people of the Church of Christ. And there, of course, is the second great benefit or blessing from this covenant. And their names were taken, that they might be remembered and nourished by the good word of God, to keep them in the right way, to keep them continually watchful unto prayer, relying alone upon the merits of Christ, who was the author and the finisher of their faith. The Book of Mormon Institute manual says, That which is wrought upon is impacted or influenced. In Moroni chapter 6, verse 4, the phrase is symbolic and has reference to what occurs when the Spirit works on and changes a convert. The atoning sacrifice of Christ makes the remission of our sins possible, but it is through the cleansing power of the Holy Ghost, the baptism of fire, that sins are actually purged or removed, and there several scriptural references are given, 
And to those, I personally would add Enos' statement when he says, Lord, how is it done in response to having his sins forgiven? So the how here, we learn, is this purging that comes from the Holy Ghost, the baptism of fire. Now the Institute Manual continues, It is also through the workings of the Holy Ghost that we gain the enabling power of the atonement to help us become faithful Latter-day Saints. I think this piece of commentary helps us understand that the Holy Ghost is so much more than what we often credit it or credit him for. We tend loosely, I think, to refer to the Holy Ghost as the Spirit and having the Spirit with us, which is the language of the sacramental prayer, so it's perfectly appropriate. But the role of this Holy Spirit, as we're learning here, is to help us to access the enabling power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. It's really the mediation and atonement of Jesus Christ that will one day allow us to access the presence of the Father. There are incidents in Scripture, the brother of Jared, most recently, and then there was Moroni's mention of having had a similar experience in Ether chapter 12, that show us that there are mortals who have at least momentarily attained the presence of the Savior. But what I think we might be able to see here is that it's the Holy Ghost that, in a way, mediates that process and makes it possible for us to access the presence of Jesus Christ. And in fact, there is a convergence of roles between the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost when we consider the name title Comforter. And that is taught very clearly in the Bible Dictionary entry on Comforter. Now turning to this other aspect, or this other blessing that is presented to us as a benefit to those who are baptized, and that is that they are numbered among the people of the Church of Christ. President Gordon B. Hinckley once wrote the following, and this was in an April 1998 conference report. Every convert must be nourished by the good word of God. It is imperative that he or she become affiliated with a priesthood quorum or the Relief Society, the young women, the young men, the Sunday school, or the primary. He or she must be encouraged to come to sacrament meeting, to partake of the sacrament, to renew the covenants made at the time of baptism. Not long ago, I listened to a man and a woman who spoke in my home ward. This man had served in many capacities in the church, including that of bishop. Their most recent assignment was to fellowship a single mother and her children. He stated that it was the most joyful of all his church experiences. This young woman was full of questions. She was filled with fear and anxiety. She did not wish to make a mistake, to say anything that was out of line that might embarrass her or cause others to laugh. Patiently, this man and his wife brought the family to church, sat with them, put a shield around them, as it were, against anything that might happen to embarrass them. They spent one evening a week with them at their home, teaching them further concerning the gospel and answering their many questions. They led that little family along as a shepherd his sheep, Eventually, circumstances dictated that they move to another city. But, he stated, we still correspond with that woman. We feel a great appreciation for her. She is now firmly grounded in the church, and we have no fear concerning her. What a joy it has been to work with her. I'm convinced that we will lose but very, very few of those who come into the church if we take better care of them. This beautiful verse, verse 4, also included the phrase, to keep them in the right way. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has spoken of this. He said inspired instruction in the home and in the church helps provide this crucial element of nourishing by the good word of God. Surely the opportunity to magnify that call exists everywhere. The need for it is everlasting. 
fathers, mothers, siblings, friends, missionaries, home and visiting teachers, priesthood and auxiliary leaders, classroom instructors, each is in his or her own way, come from God, for our schooling and our salvation. In this church, it is virtually impossible to find anyone who is not a guide of one kind or another to his or her fellow members of the flock. There are several more phrases in this verse that deserve commentary. Another is the author and finisher of their faith. Uh, And this also comes from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. It says the word author is defined as one who produces, creates, or brings into being. In our fallen state, we must look to the Savior for the acquisition and development of faith. Hence, the fourth article of faith specifies as the first principle of the gospel, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word finisher has several meanings that apply to the Savior's role in our process of developing faith. First, one who finishes, one who completely performs. We can trust the Lord to completely perform His role as we continue to strive to become more like Him. Second, one who completes or perfects. As we do our best to keep our covenants, it is through His grace that we can finally reach perfection, the ultimate goal in our journey of faith. A definition associated with finish is to polish to the degree of excellence intended. When we come to the Lord in faith as His sons and daughters, He will help us become our best. President Henry B. Eyring discussed the central role of the Savior in our redemption. He added his testimony to Moroni's that Jesus is the author and the finisher of their faith. It is the Savior who made possible our being purified through his atonement and our obedience to his commandments. And it is the Savior who will nourish those who go down in faith into the waters of baptism and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. When they always remember him, and when they continue in childlike obedience, it is he who will assure that they will have his Spirit always to be with them. Ogden and Skinner have written, How much time and effort do we spend on bringing individuals into the church? How much time and effort do we spend on keeping each person in the church? For missionaries and members, this verse talks about retention. The verse also contains specific guidelines and instructions for priesthood home teachers. What happens after baptism? Well, here's a list that Ogden and Skinner provide. 1. We receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, are cleansed by His power, and become one with the saints. 2. Our names are placed on ward and branch membership lists and on the lists for receiving the priesthood, for callings, for interviews, and for home and visiting teachers. 3. We are nourished by the good word of God through our own scripture study and through visits with our priesthood leaders, class teachers, and home and visiting teachers to keep us in the right way, continually watchful to prayer, and relying upon the merits of Christ, recognizing Him as the only source of forgiveness for our sins. President Gordon B. Hinckley gave clear instruction involving verse 4. He said every new member of the church needs three things, a friend, a responsibility, and nurturing with the good word of God. Then Ogden and Skinner referenced this beautiful verse in Alma chapter 32, verse 37, which says, And behold, as the tree beginneth to grow, you will say, Let us nourish it with great care, that it may get root, that it may grow up and bring forth fruit unto us, And now behold, if ye nourish it with much care, it will get root and grow up and bring forth fruit. Then they continue by saying, once baptized, disciples of Christ must rely alone on the merits of Christ and nothing else. What are the merits of Christ? Besides this verse, there are five other occurrences of this concept in the scriptures. 2 Nephi 2, verse 8, 2 Nephi 31, verse 19, Alma 24, verse 10, Helaman 14, verse 13, and Doctrine and Covenants section 3, verse 20. 
These passages teach of Christ's praiseworthy and everlasting qualities, virtues, and accomplishments, His justice, His mercy, His grace, His forgiveness, His compassion, His love, and His infinite sacrifice. These are the merits of Christ. Only He can save us. We cannot do enough good works to save ourselves without Him. Now, finally this, as we consider these young and tender plants who are brought into the church through baptism and are in such need of nourishment. President Gordon B. Hinckley once said, The greatest tragedy in the church is the loss of those who join the church and then fall away. With very few exceptions, it need not happen. There must be a nurturing and strengthening during this difficult season of a convert's life. A tremendous price has been paid for his or her presence in the church. It is imperative that these precious souls be welcomed, reassured, helped in their times of weakness, praised for what they do, given responsibility under which they may grow strong, and encouraged and thanked for what they do. Now for the final verses in this chapter, verses 5 through 9, Moroni will discuss patterns of the early church of Jesus Christ, first talking in verses 5 and 6 about meetings and sacrament. So verse 5, And the church did meet together oft to fast and to pray, and to speak one with another concerning the welfare of their souls. Elder Joseph B. Worthland once wrote in an October 1997 conference address, One of the many benefits of membership in the church is that of companionship with the saints. During the time of my mission in Europe, we held memorable state conferences for the military servicemen in Germany. Many of our good brothers and sisters drove long distances to attend the meetings. A number of them arrived the night before and slept on the floor of the cultural hall. No matter the sacrifice, they came with glad hearts seeking the companionship of fellow Latter-day Saints and the chance to be instructed and edified by church leaders. When we come together, we are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Ours is the commandment and the blessing to meet together oft, to fast and to pray, and to speak one with another concerning the welfare of our souls. In general conferences and in other church meetings around the world, we come together seeking companionship, the good company of brothers and sisters in the gospel, and the comfort of sweet communion with the Spirit of God. In our worship services, the presence of that Spirit fills our hearts with love for God and for our fellow saints. Verse 6, And they did meet together oft to partake of bread and wine in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. So the benefits of fellowship were elucidated upon so beautifully by Elder Worthland. But make no mistake, the centerpiece and point of our meeting together is to partake of the bread and wine in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. Ogden and Skinner have written, It has been suggested that an appropriate epitaph for a Latter-day Saint would be, Gone to another meeting. Indeed, we do attend many meetings, but there is one meeting in particular that we should attend often. We need to gather together often to fast, to pray, to talk about the doctrines of the kingdom, to partake of the sacramental emblems, to remember our Savior, to renew covenants made at baptism, and to cleanse ourselves on a weekly basis and become totally free of sin. If we have exercised faith in Him and repented of our sins before attending the meeting and partaking of the sacrament. We sometimes hear people say from the pulpit after the sacrament has been administered, Well, we've fulfilled our purpose in being here today. Not according to Moroni. We also attend sacrament meeting to fast, to pray, and to speak to one another concerning the welfare of our souls. Now another important pattern of the early church of Jesus Christ is discussed in verse 7. And they were strict to observe that there should be no iniquity among them. 
and whoso was found to commit iniquity. And three witnesses of the church did condemn them before the elders. And if they repented not and confessed not, their names were blotted out, and they were not numbered among the people of Christ. So there's a critical concept that's being discussed here that is akin to the way in which the Savior discussed the need for worthiness when the sacrament is partaken in 3 Nephi chapter 18. But there's also something very specific and procedural here, much like Moroni's language in the preceding chapters, that shows us that when the Savior organizes his church among his people, it is a church of order. And in this case of what we might call church discipline, Moroni is showing us that three witnesses of the church are required to condemn such an unworthy party. So again, this was discussed in 3 Nephi 18, but it has been discussed at other points in the Book of Mormon as well. And there's always another part to this. There's always an avenue or pathway that's provided for the disciplined party to return. So verse 8 will reflect that, and we'll read that in just a moment. First, this from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. King Benjamin explained that a person's name is blotted out only by transgression. Alma warned, that names of the wicked shall not be mingled with the names of my people. That's in Alma chapter 5. There comes a time when each person who commits serious iniquities must repent, or that person is not worthy of the Lord's presence or membership in the kingdom. Unrepentant members can lose their membership through church disciplinary action. Verse 8, here's this avenue. But as oft as they repented and sought forgiveness with real intent, they were forgiven. Ogden and Skinner have written... The people of God in the ancient Americas were strict to keep the church free from contaminating sin. Members who were accused of serious transgression before a disciplinary council, and who refused to confess and repent so that their sins could be blotted out, had their names blotted out instead, and they were not numbered among the Church of Christ. There I think we certainly can think of Mosiah chapter 26, when Limhi and his people returned from the land of Nephi to Zarahemla, and when Alma also found his way back with his followers to the land of Zarahemla, and they all had this coming together and submitted to the leadership of King Mosiah. And uh, this was uh, such a wonderful season for these Nephites and really for us as readers after all the diversionary storylines that took place up to that point. But when we come to Mosiah chapter 26, we learn of a rising generation, and it becomes clear that this rising generation, and in fact it becomes clear through a revelation given to Alma that reads very much like a section in the Doctrine and Covenants, that on this occasion disciplinary measures were required. And in that chapter, many similar concepts were discussed, as the ones that Ogden and Skinner are discussing here. So, they continue, The same option is available to Latter-day members of Christ Church. We can have our sins blotted out or our names blotted out. It is our choice. Then and now, when we sincerely repent and seek forgiveness, our sins are forgiven. Moroni chapter 6 verse 8 ought to be one of our favorite verses. We can be forgiven of every wrongdoing except one. Both the Savior and the Prophet Joseph Smith affirm that the only sin for which any of us cannot be forgiven is denying the Holy Ghost. It is the only unpardonable sin. The Savior said all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And the prophet reiterated the promise that there is only one sin beyond the redeeming power of the atonement. Essentially, it is the only sin that involves refusing to accept the efficacy of the atonement. He said, All sins shall be forgiven except the sin against the Holy Ghost, for Jesus will save all except the sons of perdition. 
What must a man do to commit the unpardonable sin? He must receive the Holy Ghost, have the heavens opened unto him, and know God, and then sin against them. After a man has sinned against the Holy Ghost, there is no repentance for him. He has got to say that the sun does not shine while he sees it. He has got to deny Jesus Christ when the heavens have been opened unto him, and to deny the plan of salvation with his eyes open to the truth of it, and from that time he begins to be an enemy. Now here's the final piece of this chapter in verse 9, where Moroni talks about another feature of the patterns of the early church of Jesus Christ, and maybe the crowning feature, really, and I think the prophet Joseph Smith said something to that effect at one time, but that is that these meetings were to be conducted by the power of the Holy Ghost. Verse 9, And their meetings were conducted by the church after the manner of the workings of the Spirit, and by the power of the Holy Ghost. For as the power of the Holy Ghost led them whether to preach, or to exhort, or to pray, or to supplicate, or to sing, even so it was done. So, very interesting that five distinct activities are referred to there by Moroni, and the last one is to sing. All of these things happen in our meetings, in our dispensation. Elder David B. Haight has written, We have begun a great effort to invite all to come unto Christ. As the members meet the active and the less active, the poor in spirit, the singles and the married, the handicapped, and those who have been disciplined, they ought to fill the spirit, love, and forgiveness. For all of us, this ought to be a time of prayerful meditation and thanksgiving. The singular tragedy of the Nephite decline, as recorded by Mormon in the Book of Mormon, was the loss of the Holy Ghost and the spiritual gifts. Wisdom and inspiration dictated that Moroni include in his closing record the instructions by his father, Mormon, on the ordinations, the sacrament, and practices of the church. Noteworthy is this testimony about their meetings. Then uh, here's verse 9. Their meetings were conducted by the church after the manner of the workings of the Spirit and by the power of the Holy Ghost. For as the power of the Holy Ghost led them whether to preach or to exhort or to pray or to supplicate or to sing, even so it was done. That is the Spirit that can and should characterize our worship and our sacrament meetings. A sister remarked to me after one such spiritual meeting, I don't recall all that was said, but I remember how we felt as we sang the closing hymn and bowed our heads in prayer. May God bless us all to remember the Savior and His atoning sacrifice and to unite in making our sacrament meetings a time of reverence, remembrance, and worship. Well, this brings this chapter to a close then, as well as this section in the book of Moroni that has extended after his preface in chapter 1 from chapters 2 through chapter 6. Now as we move into Moroni chapters 7, 8, and 9, we get to hear from Mormon himself for one final time. In chapter 7, we will read of a great sermon that Mormon gave in a synagogue during his day. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we will read epistles that he sent to Moroni. So we have all of this to look forward to, as well, of course, as the final great chapter in the Book of Mormon, Moroni chapter 10. So, for now, this brings us to the end of Moroni chapter 6. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. This podcast has recently reached 100,000 listens and has been heard in many parts of the world. I love hearing from you. If you have the time to reach out to me, as many of you have, to share episodes on social media and to write a review on iTunes, you will greatly help my efforts to get this podcast to even more listeners and help them in their experience with the Come Follow Me curriculum.
I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. The Book of Mormon Institute Manual, Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon, and the revised edition of Thomas Arvaleta's Book of Mormon Study Guide have provided me with rich and insightful commentary. Introductions, chapter analyses, and sectional divisions are my own. Parallel passages of scripture, as well as general conference addresses that come to mind, also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them, and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text. A text that is endlessly rich with detail, and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story and mortality. I have found, and hope that you have too, that carefully studying the Word, particularly in the Book of Mormon, has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author, Jesus the Christ. I offer my witness that His attention is fixed upon us. He delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know Him better. So, have a wonderful day. Keep in touch, and thank you for listening.